You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored well hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comic show and i am just one of the hosts matthew rushing and i'm so excited this week casey we have an incredible show for everyone yes we do we are going to be talking to john and maria jose tenuto about their new making of star trek 2 book and uh I, I can't wait for that. I that's it's a great opportunity for us. Yes. It's it's gonna be phenomenal. I can't wait for people to hear it. Uh before we get there though, and before we even dive into the news, thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh and that way uh you'll be able to hear every episode as soon as it drops. Um and of course right now too, if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts in the US store, you can be entered to win a copy of Patrick Stewart's memoir making it so uh casey has an extra copy so we would love to send that to you so get that review in by the end of november so we can do our drawing and announce who the winner is and get that out to you right there around christmas uh of course you can also find us all over social media we're on twitter at trek fm we're on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm we're on instagram at trek fm there is the listeners only discussion group called the babel conference you can talk to listeners from all over the world by joining and you can go over to patreon at patreon.com slash trek fm and be an associate producer with literary treks and the network like casey pettit and greg rosier uh please go over there and do that we would really appreciate that uh and again that's patreon at patreon.com slash trek fm so casey we've got a couple of different comic reviews here before we dive into our feature and one is the Halloween series. Uh, we're actually going to just talk about the entire series because it's finished now. And I'm really interested to hear, uh, you know, what you thought of this one, because in all honesty, I remember just the fact that this was coming out and thinking, oh, this is a very interesting idea that I think could go sideways very quickly. So on a whole, what did you end up thinking of this miniseries? Well, I I don't think that I'd say that it went totally sideways, but um you know, it, and it's it's a fun thing. It's it's uh it's very uh timely as we record this. It's the day before Halloween and um so, you know, it's kind of fun to get themed uh you know, fiction, I guess, <laughs> for that. Uh I you know, so in that vein, it, it is fun to have gotten to read this so close to the time of year that it's actually, uh, referencing within it. 
I don't think it's necessarily going to hold up well if you want to read this mid-year or anything like that. But you know, it's a it's it's a fun attempt at uh, you know just a, a holodeck adventure in the next generation series run, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I think you know overall, I do feel like this does kind of suffer from kind of. IDW trying to do too much, like we talked about last time on the show when we had just a whole slew of new comics. And, um, you know, so, so overall, I guess I'd say this is, this is one of the ones, you know, for me that, that, that lacks something. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what, but, um, you know, it, it was kind of fun for what it was trying to do, but it, in the end, it didn't really add anything for me to the Star Trek lore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more about any of that. I think one of the things, too, is that it probably should have just been three issues instead of four. I think that they kind of dragged it out too long by giving it four issues. And I think, you know, like you mentioned in the sense that it doesn't go completely sideways. And I think they actually create uh, the best version of it they can with the villain that they create to kind of give it this Halloween feel. I think that was really wise for them to do it in that way. Um, and so it made it feel as uh, quote unquote realistic as possible as you could get it to, to create this type of story. Um, you know, obviously this is very much, uh, you know, a convention they're using so they can kind of have the Halloween theme, which in some ways is rather forced, I think, for Star Trek in the first place. And so, but all in all, I think it becomes as good as you could possibly expect, really, with this. And uh, so, you know, I guess it's probably a, a mixed bag for me in that way. It's probably... Yeah, two point five out of five, you know, Halloween characters because because really, I think it's it's trying too hard to fit a convention that doesn't really fit Star Trek in general. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it too for me because you know one of the things we like to talk about with the comics is they're able to do a lot of things that we couldn't get on the show, which they're certainly doing here, but um to do some of the things that they do with our characters like Picard and Worf and Deanna and Riker, um, you know, without giving too much away, if our reader or if our listeners want to, to read this series, you know, like it, it's just stuff that it was reminiscent of the gold key comics. in in some ways um, it was just a little, a little bit left field from, I think where we would normally see, our characters go, but, you know, being a, you know, you know, they, like you mentioned, they had a great villain that they brought in for this to really kind of lean into the Halloween nature of it. And yeah, I couldn't agree more that uh, this, if they'd ended, if they'd wrapped it up in issue three, uh, issue four was completely unnecessary bringing in um, the sidekick villain, I guess that they did. Um, and yeah, I think for me, it would be uh um, yeah, two out of five sidekick villains from the fourth issue. <laughs> I love that. Well, we did also get uh, Star Trek 13, uh, which is the ongoing series there. And this is the follow up to the Day of Blood and kind of kicking off where we're going next with these characters. And so I'm really interested to see 
what you thought of this as we launch into the next part of this series. I actually feel similar as I did to the Defiant one that we talked about last time. Uh, this one's called Glass and Bone Part 1, and it's similar to the Defiant issue. It's really a transition from that Day of Blood into this new storyline. So it's like if this was going to be like a standalone kind of mini series, this would almost be our issue zero, which is just really setting up what's going to happen. And I think that they did a pretty good job, uh, in this one, um, you know, where we're still kind of coming down, I guess, off of day of blood and, and our characters are kind of almost resetting themselves and, and themselves are trying to figure out what they're going to do next. You know, Cisco is, uh, you know, kind of re- getting ready to go back to the Celestial Temple and be with the prophets. But Starfleet comes in and says, we still need you, which was a pretty clever little little way, I thought, of keeping him around and, and making sure that he sticks around. Um, you know, we got some more um, kind of more focus on some of our other minor characters like Ensign Sato. Uh, Tom Paris gets to step up quite a bit in this one. And um, by by the end of this issue, for me, especially with who they bring in at the end, I thought, um, you know, we're kind of we're still in this place with this Star Trek um, ongoing comic series where I don't know, I feel like they're they're hitting, you know, hitting their stride and really kind of finding these characters and, and figuring out how to use them um, the best way they can. Uh, yeah, I think you said that so well and and honestly really summed up uh, everything that I was feeling reading this. You know, uh, part of this whole series really is about uh, the way in which they utilize so many different Star Trek characters from so many of the 24th century series. And I think they do it incredibly well and make it really interesting. Um, I, I liked uh, even the reference to uh, Star Trek Insurrection that we got in here mm-hmm. um, with the Admiral talking to Cisco. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, too, the way in which we deal kind of with the fallout for different characters from this experience, like with Sato or even with Crusher and her kind of ignoring Picard's calls um, and just what that means for their relationship and her in general as a character who's growing. And so it's it's incredibly fun to be reading this series because in a lot of ways, as amped up and crazy as it is, I, I do think you can truly tell that the writers here are big Star Trek fans who really do know these characters. So things don't feel completely out of place uh, for these characters and what they're going through. So as I have been with this entire series, I'm really looking forward to where we go uh, in this next arc, you know, and what happens with these characters and where we take them. Uh, and uh, it's it's been a series that I've just continued to enjoy, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, and uh, I hope that, you know, this next run will kind of live up to the the potential that I think that this issue hints at, especially as we go and look at something that we have never seen uh, pictures of, really, I don't believe, which is the Zenkethi, yeah. uh, and maybe really getting a chance to see what they look like um, and their interpretation. So, uh, yeah, phenomenal. So I, I couldn't be more excited to where we're going to go next, but... 
Casey, I think we have talked enough. I think it's time to jump into our feature with the Tenudos. Well, Casey, we have an incredible lineup today, and I'm just so excited to to be able to cover this. Um, of course, recently uh, we had uh, the brand new book about Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, come out by the Tenudos, and I'm just so excited that both John and Maria Jose are here today to talk about this book with us. Welcome back to Literary Tracks. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Awesome. Well, first, I kind of wanted just to set the stage uh, for everybody. And both of of you, uh, I know, have been uh, Star Trek fans for a very long time. And so um, I'm just kind of wondering what your history is with Star Trek and what got you into the series and what has kept you a fan for all of these years. Well, I'll start because I'm older. I guess I'll start with the older guy here. Uh, we'll go back in time. Uh, well, um, I, you know, I was born, the original Star Trek was on TV, but I was a little too young to see it in the original running. Um, but I did, I was very much kind of that uh, uh, person who came in through the animated series back in the 70s and through the reruns, you know, on TV, uh, was a huge fan um, by the time uh, the motion picture came out. Um, really discovered there was a whole world of Star Trek beyond just the TV show uh, when I went to see Star Trek II uh, at the Esquire Theater uh, on June 4th, <laughs> 1982, with my dad. I just happened it happened really by accident to go on opening night. And that's when I discovered the whole fan world because everybody was everybody there was a true believer. So uh they were it was a it was a really energetic wonderful experience uh, uh, for me. And that's how I, how I got back, how I got into Star Trek originally. And your mom got you the Mego toys. Yeah, I had, I, you know, I had the Mego toys when I was a kid and uh, still have them. That's still awesome. play with them. Have them right now. Played with them this morning. No. Uh, and uh, <laughs> no, I still have them. I still have my mom, the, when my mom, she got them at the Montgomery Ward bargain basement in uh, Chicago, which people from Chicago may oh my know gosh. what that is. But uh, it was, uh, sort of a side uh, outlet store and uh, they used to have all these great things and my mom got me that there and because uh, i liked science fiction i had liked uh, planet of the apes a lot um you know and then of course star wars came along uh, there's before star wars and after star wars so that before star wars was planet <laughs> of the apes and star trek so. That's awesome. I knew of Star Trek, um, of Star Trek Next Generation. I mean, how could you not? It was so popular. It was everywhere. Um, my brother would have it on. So I knew of it, uh, like in passing, but I didn't get into it until I met John. And I was working on my graduate paper and he was catching up on Star Trek Deep Space Nine at the time. And I would hear in the other room, I would hear these words like palm wraiths. And I would poke my head out and I'd ask like, what is this? And Slowly, I got like sucked in and uh, I had to watch it. And he showed me the movies in a particular order. Uh, we started with Star Trek Four, And that's what his recommendation is for anybody who's new to Star Trek. Start with that movie. Um, and so then we watched in a particular order. And um, then I've, I've come to watch every Star Trek. And um, I love it. I love that you can watch a show 
when it airs and you can see it as one thing, right? It's a story about, let's say it's a story about like healthcare. And then like 10 years from now, you can watch it again and you can, because so much has changed in society and the zeitgeist, you can watch it and you could see something else in it. So it's so timeless and universal and such great stories. So I love using mm-hmm. in my class. I show um, segments of it to my class um, on different topics. So I use it a lot. And I knew yeah. I knew yeah, that uh, awesome. she had been converted to the true faith uh, when we were getting <laughs> married uh, 25 years ago. And we were picking out, they had DJs back then, the actual DJs at uh, at wedding receptions, <laughs> not just an MP3 player that your cousin brought, you know, mm-hmm. slap on your phone. But um, so we were by the DJ's house and you had to pick out your songs and what order you wanted. And he had a big thing of records. And Mary Jo, without any prompting, said she wanted us to walk into the Voyager theme. So I and said, okay. Reception. I said, that was, that was when I knew that she knew, <laughs> she knew the greatness that was Star Trek. He chose wisely. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, John, you mentioned, you know, a little bit of your history with Star Trek II. But I know that um, for both of you, you know, this has kind of been a passion researching uh, Star Trek and specifically Star Trek II. And so I, I was kind of wondering as we were, you know, getting into the book, what was it that had really captured your imagination about understanding the history of this film specifically well i think there was a you know a couple reasons we went into it one one was well besides the emotional connection we have to the film you know as as a as as being what star trek 2 is um one really was our 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 goal was to sort of celebrate um the behind the scenes artists to celebrate um the people whose names people see on credits who don't necessarily you may not necessarily either understand what they do um or maybe they don't always get credit because certainly i think a lot of attention in hollywood is always on the actors and actresses which is f- certainly fair uh certainly bring a great deal to a film um and they're the face of of the characters and so on but you know uh, the the we wanted to really focus on the writers on the um the writing process the directing um stunts, hairstyling, um, makeup, um, areas of Star Trek II that that hadn't been covered as much before. Um, and that was really one of our first sort of passions was uh, uh, to make the credits come alive. So that, that that's sort of a pet peeve of ours. Is- yeah, to, yeah, I wanted to add to that. So often, especially on TV, they will push the credits off to the side or run them really quick so you can't even see it, you can't read it. And so we think it's a crime that all these people who worked on it, they're they're not being seen. And so it's, you know, to us, it's a, it's a, it was a chance to really um, to do that, to, to celebrate and highlight those. And then also, of course, it was a, we have a, a, a deep affection for Ricardo Montalban as a person. We've done a lot of research on him. Um, just his whole life, his family is really wonderful in letting us do that research and giving us access to certain materials and, and just share it with our students. Um, so, uh, it was a chance to do a little bit more too with Ricardo as well. And the book really, it had to get done now, um, because so many, we've lost so many people and, you know, the longer you wait, there's not going to be as many people who were there, um, to ask questions of. Yeah, that really was one of our, we, we wanted to approach the book almost like a piece of sociology research where it's nothing was said in there unless there was a source for it. And then also to 
to do some myth busting. That was part of our big, our our big mission. Uh, although you know, you mistakes creep into everything, uh, into every book and every every documentary and everything. And also, there's just mistakes of memory that happen too when you're asking somebody what what happened 40 years. Do you remember this day 40 years ago when you were doing your <laughs> right. job? You know, that, you know, uh, I might've remembered every detail of it because I'm a fan, but for people where it's their job, it's, it's like anybody, anyone else being asked what their job was like 40 years ago. So, um, uh, but that was one of our things we really wanted to, to like break myths and, 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 and see and answer certain questions, um, that as fans, we ourselves always had. You know, and uh, was, you know, was it ever a TV movie, uh, you know, at any time officially, you know, in production as a TV movie? Those kinds of questions we wanted to answer. And uh, would Leonard Nimoy only take it if Spock died? I thought that was kind of an interesting one, too, that we all <laughs> we've all heard that rumor. Yeah, I, and really not all not at all in his mindset. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. That was brought to him as a, an option. He he had wanted to be involved, um, but wanted it, to, it did not want it to be Star Trek the motion picture either. Right. Yeah, it was. I definitely appreciated getting a lot of that background of the of those the producers, the writers, you know, like you said, the hairstylists and everybody, because um, some of the names in there were familiar. I mean, just from watching the credits or or whatever, or just hearing interviews with um, certain people that you know. Were, were prevalent at the time between Harv Bennett or um, uh, Jack Sowards, I think is um, one of them. And um, but getting a little bit more background into them was was great. So I really appreciate that. Um, one of the people that you had one of those little kind of Starfleet archive uh, or, or personnel files was Gene Roddenberry, who um, a lot of people may not know wasn't as involved he was actually an executive consultant on this um and i wondered if you could talk about uh you know kind of your discovery into his process you know when he when when they were making a movie based on his work yeah you know as soon as star trek i mean the star trek the motion picture really did very well at the box office i mean it was a financial success the problem was it had cost a lot to make um and it was also a very challenging project. I mean, it really was a Herculean effort to bring back a TV show. No one had done that before, right? To do a TV show from 10 years before, bring it back and to do it in such a large way. So, I mean, they, they really deserve a lot of credit for what they did with the motion picture. I mean, it was and produced under the time constraints that it was produced under and so on. So, but, you know, when they were going to blame someone for the problems of it, the blame got placed on Gene Roddenberry for that. And so, um, the idea was, you know, if we're going to move forward with it, we don't want to have the same type of, of problems occur on this on the sequel. So, uh, yeah, he 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 was, you know, working on a sequel. He had ideas and he was generating sequel ideas, uh, but then he was sort of moved out into that, as you mentioned, case of the the the, the um, executive consultant. Um, now he took that role seriously, so he he produced a, many pages of notes on all the different versions of the script um, and and dealt with, and really I thought just fascinating because it gives you an idea of how, what he thought of Star Trek, what he thought for the first time of someone else really doing Star Trek, um, although he wasn't that involved in the third season of the show either, but, you know, to see, to see 
you know, Star Trek in its sort of maturity and as a cultural phenomenon now, what this creator thought of different characters and so on. And I thought with, for us, one of the most interesting things was how he wasn't that, I mean, he would point out when there were inconsistencies, you know, canon inconsistencies, but uh, uh, would always say, we we want you to know that we broke those every week too. Like we, there's no way you can do this and not break these rules that you set for yourself or the set for the universe. You just can't do it. Um, but he was a lot more concerned sort of with character and protecting the characters. And I think one of the mythologies was that he was sort of given this role, given a pile of money so he they could put his name on it, and and which they do in Hollywood a lot, right? They'll call someone an executive producer on a movie and they have nothing to do with it. They're, they're basically being yeah. paid to not say something negative about, about it, right? Um, and to give it, to have that name attached. He didn't approach it that way. He took it very seriously. And they 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 took him seriously. They took his suggestions. There were changes made because of what he wrote. So he did contribute, I think, a lot more than people think. I think that's such an interesting thing uh, to have happen. And, and obviously, it, it's an interesting shift for him because with each successive film, he'll kind of be less involved. Um, and, and, and part of that, you know, just becomes too... Um, his health continues to start to decline, you know, throughout the 80s, which is always a, a terribly sad part of the whole story with him. But I think one of the things I was really impressed with in the book is the way in which, you know, we kind of get a new captain in the sense of, you know, Nicholas Meyer comes in to be the director. And I think I was really struck by how well both of you were able to frame the story of what he actually does for this film. And I think what he does is that it becomes completely about what Roddenberry cared about, which was the characters. But unlike the motion picture, which, you know, the more I see it, the more I fall in love with that movie, because I do think there's a lot there. But I think one of the things is that Meyer was able to tap into the humanity of every single one of these main cast members in a way that I think even in many ways sometimes retroactively helps me see these characters in that light. Like I think Star Trek II put a pin in exactly who every single one of these characters were. And that's the genius of what Nick Meyer was, I think, able to do with five different scripts, pulling that all together, because that was his main focus. And the rest of the plot had to revolve around what the character story was, which is what actually makes, I think, a good Star Trek story, really, or any story in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he absolutely he he approached here, which which is, I think, it made more remarkable his approach by the fact that he didn't know much about Star Trek, right? He is, right. His, you know, um, <laughs> he was telling us that, you know, his, well, he, when he was, when he was in college at the university of Iowa, he had a professor who made, who made an assignment where the students were supposed to sort of watch Star Trek and then watch mission impossible. But the idea was, you could watch Star Trek without looking at it. In other like words, if you, you listen to it, like if it was a radio drama, because it has that. It, it, it's very, it's very uh, um, dialogue heavy. It's very character focused. 
Um, it's it's sure there's a lot of action, but by necessity, they couldn't show you much of it because of the special effects limitations of the time. So it forced a kind of character focus on the original show. Whereas Mission Impossible, there's huge segments that have no dialogue. If you weren't looking at it, you wouldn't understand what was going on. And um, and and so that was pretty much the extent of his relationship. He knew science fiction. Uh, for sure, H.G. Wells and so on. He was a fan of, a huge fan of that. But um, he approached it more like sort of a naval uh, film. Um, and then, and but somehow he knew these characters. He he understood the characters. And he, uh, I know he talks in his own book about that they have a certain charm to them. And that if you, you tap into that charm, there's a charm to McCoy. There's a charm to Kirk. There's a charm to Spock. And if you you tap into those that charm, um, then you're really hitting at what the characters are about. And he brought touches of realism to it. I mean, he acknowledged that these characters are aging, and just small little touches like the exit sign, you know, little bits of realism. Yeah. Well, he had quite the job ahead of him too with. Um the multiple versions of the scripts that existed at the time that he came on board to where he basically had to go and try and figure out what was the, the best parts, I guess, of each script, like what all the beats were that they wanted to, to have. And um, I mean, to come in and then not even take a writing credit, if I remember correctly, like he, you know, <laughs> put all these disparate elements together and figured out what to keep and what to get rid of. And, um, I think that would be insurmountable to some some directors, especially ones not already familiar with the material. And it's in an, an incredible short amount of time, in less than two weeks. Um, and and really all the, the all the dialogue. There's a couple lines. Uh, I, we mention it in the book here and there, where you know that a few of those are Harv Bennett. You know, Harv Bennett. Harv Bennett could coin a phrase. He was he was a good dialogue. <laughs> Uh, I knew how to put sort of humor in there and things like that. But I, you know, when you, that script should have had his name on it. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it should have been a, you know, co-writing Jack B. Sowards and Nicholas Meyer. Um, and of course, Samuel Peoples, we kind of tracked that in the book, but the there are contributions that each of the writers who tried their hand at the script made. Um, Peoples' script was, was way, way out there. Uh, that would have been a whole, no, it would have been a totally no con. There's no con in people's script yeah. whatsoever, but there's, uh, but there is Savic and it's a little closer to the Savic that we know. So, uh, people's did contribute a, a very important element to the, to the story, even though the script, his script was basically unused. I think that was one of the things too, with, uh, with the script and the the changes that happened, um, you know, that was part of the thing that I wasn't as aware of coming into the book. So I was really enjoying um, getting to see where they had started this script, which, you know, was not just pulling from Space Seed, but a lot of other Star Trek episodes to kind of truly make this a sequel to the original series, which there were some of those changes where I was kind of lamenting that they happened because I actually loved the idea of, you know, pulling Kirk's love interest from the series, um, you know, pulling back in the Romulan uh, commander um, back in to possibly be, you know, uh, Savick's uh, parent, you know, all of those type of little touches, which were like, 
you know, as a Star Trek fan, we love when they make those connections. Um, but I, I loved getting a chance to to read all of those different variations of the script because I think it it really goes to show just how much they wanted to make a switch from you know what was done in the motion picture to something that felt more akin to the show that they were trying to you know create a sequel to. That's one of our favorite things to do. Just as an aside, is to. Um, look at episodes and then look at the original scripts, see how the scripts changed over time. Um, so for example, the original series, uh, The Side of Paradise, that was supposed to be a love story with um, Sulu, not Spock. Yeah, we got to talk to DC Fontana uh, uh, a few years before she passed away um, and and get into why, you know, what, and the difference of the Enterprise incident too was... Very different. Had the Romulan Praetor in there, um, so it would have been the first time we would have seen seen that character. Um, yeah, all the what ifs I think are always sort of fascinating. You know, absolutely. Well, and that's something too. It, you know, as we're talking about Nicholas Meyer, and we mentioned Harp Bennett, but I, I think this book does such a great job of just showing how um, irreplaceable he was. Um, because, you know, he did the thing where he be- did the crash course to become a fan and to know the series. And really, I think, you you know, you can see his fingerprints then across the rest of the series. And, and, and without him, you know, I don't know if things would have turned out as well. And, and he really is kind of an unsung hero in many ways um, for, you know, one, of course, Star Trek II turning out the way it does. But honestly all of the original series films that we get. You know, it's funny. We There are a couple of things in the book that we had wanted. A, the, there was a, a limitation, right, on as there always is with page numbers, right? And, and Titan and was... And word count. And word count. And mm. Titan was very generous in letting us go. We we requested to go more than the, the budget had originally been, uh, at, you know, approved for. And, I, and they said, okay, because... It, so we were very happy with that. But because of that, a few things... That waylaid that we would have, we, we wished we could have added more. Um, we wanted to have more about James Horner in the book. Um, weren't able to get it in there. Plus, we had felt that Jeff Bond did such a wonderful job with his book that we would just be repeating his work anyway. Um, we couldn't find the images yeah. either. I don't, we don't know if there was ever a picture taken of James Horner conducting, like, um, scoring that music because, um, we have one picture, but it's, it's, the resolution is so bad, and it's not even scoring. It's it's a it's, it's a, them looking at it. It's it's you know uh, Harv Bennett and and Nick Meyer and 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 Jamie Horner looking over the score, and and just like you know a posed picture. It's a fake mm-hmm. you know it's a fake posed picture you know, and um uh there I don't think there was because it was such a fast recording process for him. I don't think anybody took to now maybe they're in James Horner's archives or private photos or something, but. We've never seen that. And that became an issue a little bit more. We'd like to have included about William Dornish and the editing on it. There were, there were just a few things that we had wanted to put in there. One of the things has to do with Harb Bennett, which was um, uh, he, w- w- I was friends uh, with a, a woman named Val Yeager who ran something called, it was a Mensa Star Trek group. So it was for men, fans who were Mensa members. And this is all she Val was one of those original series pioneering female fans, right? The the 
the the you know the Joan Winston era, uh, the Joe Trimble, um, you know that kind of thing, and um, he had a, made maintained a correspondence and friendship with Harv Bennett, and she was one of the several fans that Harv reached out to to ask opinions about Star Trek, to learn about Star Trek. And um, before she had passed away, she had shared with us all their correspondence with each other and her her suggestions, his responses. Uh, we had really wanted to include those in the book, but um, it's, we just didn't have the time. We, we were able to get Val's name in and that was about it. But um, those are fantastic. And they show you how much Harv Bennett cared about doing this thing right. Um, and, you know, and, and the, so this, this, the numerous amounts of people who he gave access to that script to, um, and whose opinions he sought from fans to even professionals. Uh, I know Walter Koenig was asked to do a fan read basically on it, you know, uh, as somebody who had written scripts for Star Trek himself, right. In the man animated series and, um, and for other sci-fi TV shows. So, uh, yeah, Harv Bennett was just, you know, Harv Bennett's, uh, Robert Salen, um, immeasurable contributions to the, to the, to the film. You guys obviously do a tremendous amount of research. And like you mentioned earlier, you've you know, done some work researching original series episodes too. Uh, at this point in your research for this book and, and Star Trek two, you know, is obviously a fan favorite movie. Uh, there's so much out there about it. Um, I feel like this book that that you two have have written adds so much more to um you know what we already know and didn't know but was there anything that was surprising to you as you were doing research about Star Trek 2 that you know you were just super excited to get into this book so that the fans could know Well one of our most commonly asked questions when we ever whenever we do like a presentation or at a convention people and this is kind of a just a small one but they always ask, is Montalban's chest real? And that's one of those myths <laughs> out there. There's so many people who's like, oh, it's fake. It's a plate. It's real. Um, we were able, we were so lucky to be able to um, communicate with his daughter. And it was like the day before she passed away. And she shared with us how he got up at 3 a.m. every morning and worked out for three hours to prepare for this role. And it shows and I always tell people, go watch Fantasy Island. When you see him, there's uh, episodes where he's like swimming in the ocean and you see him walk out of the water and you see that's his chest. His whole life, he was just very physical. And even um, older, uh, when, he was born with a condition called AVM, which is like a mass of uh, nerve, tangled nerve endings on your spine. And that got aggravated in the 50s when he did the, sh uh, the movie Across the Wide Missouri. That was the name of the film. And he was thrown from a horse and landed on his back right on a like a boulder. Um, but later in life, he's in a wheelchair and still he's exercising. He's, he's using the hand bike to maintain his upper body strength. Um, and that's why uh, in Spy Kids 3, they uh, the director, Robert Rodriguez, right? Um, he made that scene where he confronts the toy maker and he's standing up. Um, because Montalban had that presence and he had that upper body strength. Um, so that was one of yeah. the things that we were so happy um, to be able to interview her and to get that information. Oh, and the wig. Yes, we found out um, the wig, Khan's wig, ends up in Nicholas Meyer's film, 
is it the lieutenant? Oh, volunteers. Volunteers, yes. Um, so the same hairstylist worked on that film. And so it's Khan's wig, but styled differently. The villain. <laughs> That's, <funny>. That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, so when you look outside of Kirk's apartments, when you see uh, San Francisco, that is a small part of a larger mural that was painted for the towering inferno. And we wanted to get that picture. They um, they rented that portion of the picture from, I think it's 20th Century Fox. Mm -hmm. They rented it from. So um, we wanted to get that picture in the book. Uh, two two of my favorite things I didn't know going in was uh, was um, what actually has to do with the apartment. Also, when we were looking at whether or not it was a TV movie or not, and looking at the memos. Uh, which it, the book answers the question that, you know, yes, it was. It was a TV movie of the week. It was planned to be a TV movie of the week. That's why Harv Bennett was brought in because he was on the TV side. It, it got transformed into a film before Nicholas Meyer starts writing. But it was, we have the memo, basically the, the memo that does the transfer over. This is, you know, this is now a motion picture. This is now what everything's going to cost. And one of the casualties of that was that in when it was a TV movie, uh, Kirk's apartment was going to be a two-story set. So it was going to have stairs, and I, we would have seen more of his apartment, which would have been great because I, I I loved I always loved, liked his apartment. You know, um, this is Pat. How can you not want to see where Kirk hangs out? You know, on his. Um, but um, so that had to be changed uh, because obviously everything costs more when you go to a movie. So that was sort of one of those things that was that was sort of lost. Um, and the other thing that I that I really enjoyed um, uh, learning was that um, uh, really from from uh, Julie Nimoy, who um, contributed not only the forward to our book, but also a, a remembrance of her father, was learning about what it was like for Leonard that day that he filmed the scene that that was. You know, he he talks a little bit about it in his book, but you know, to get his daughter's perception and and because she drove drove him every day to the studio and was there, one of the very few people. There weren't a lot of people on the set that day, uh, and she's one of the few people that's on the set. And to and to have that sort of firsthand account like that of somebody who isn't having to direct it, you know, or act in it. Um, and all the thoughts that have to go into that, but really somebody who's there as, as a partially as an observer, um, and then it's your own father doing it. I mean, it's, it, to me, that was really fascinating to learn about, um, to learn about all of that. So just a little fun, fun, there were, you know, a lot of little fun, little tidbits here and there, uh, that, that, uh, that we learned, but we were very excited to share those things with uh, fans. And early on when we got access to Nicholas Meyer's papers at the University of Iowa was the whole con baby mystery. Like who is the con baby? Is it really con's baby? Mm, yes. And then in our book, we wanted to show there's a lot more pictures mm. of filming that scene. They filmed that scene or at least tried to film that scene. Um, we couldn't get um, a lot of those pictures in there because it shows the baby's face and we have not been able to identify who that person is. So we couldn't get the permission from the person to include it in the book. So if Con Baby is listening, the world wants to know who you were. Yes. You will be the biggest celebrity <laughs> in Star Trek, I think. Seriously. If you could, if you could uh, see maybe. the baby from the front, um, you can see why they call it the Con Baby because it's got the same 
hair and then they had a cute little um like open chest outfit. it really looks like little um, <laughs> yeah it's just little, a mini me awesome. uh, is what mm-hmm. the baby looks. that's fantastic i mean seriously that person could make a killing at conventions oh, definitely you know i mean you're 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 missing out con baby so just let us know um i i love the 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 thought process too of of, of you guys talking about the difficulty of trying to figure out what to put in the book. Um, and was there, and, and you've already mentioned some great things, but was there anything else that, that you were thinking, oh my gosh, I just wish we could have added this because, you know, it's an incredible story or it helps shine a spotlight on somebody? One of the challenges was one uh, we were writing during COVID. So we weren't able to go to some of these places to access their archives. And then another is that it's so scattered. Um, So Nicholas Myers material is at University of Iowa and that we were very grateful um, to have all that material. Um, But um, uh, Fletcher's, uh, the costume designer, his is at Harvard. So a lot of stuff is just um, scattered throughout. Or in the hands of fans. We had to go to the fan community for several of the resources because... um, They've, you know, they're, they're, they're not always, you know, they're, they're, they're not archived, right? And the, the thought process wasn't there uh, to necessarily archive things as much as they are, uh, they would be today. Um, well, I would have liked to have had more about that camera, the, the, you know, ILM was really great, you know, any special effects imagery in there, except for a few, um, all those pictures were courtesy of ILM, which was, you know, a thrill for us to get to talk to Ken Ralston was like, you know, you're getting two two big franchises for the price of one, right? Uh, plus a million other things. Can we mention uh, this photo? Oh yeah, sure too. And and um and and it was funny because every time we talked about the VistaVision camera with anybody, everyone's eyes lit up. Um, because it's such an extraordinary camera. It's an it's an enormously large camera, heavy camera. Uh, ILM at the time owned some of the very few of them. They may have been the only ones to own VistaVision cameras. They were used back in the old days to do, you know, I mean, the film, the, the camera actually has what movies um, it filmed on the side. And and uh, and Nick Meyer was able to say, yeah, we that camera was used to film this movie. But the reason that, that heavy cameras needed when you need to maybe, say, have Kirk walk across a uh, the view screen so that they can, that, so that there will be not, not a single shake of the camera even imperceptible. And it helps the special effects artists um, do even better work um, using that kind of camera. And um, so, I mean, it would have been great to like, you know, get into where, what happened to that camera? Where is it now? Does it still exist? You know, uh, that would have been a fun thing. And Mary Jo, I know, has a favorite. Yeah, there was a photo we wanted to include of Lucille Ball um, with Charlie Blue Dorn. And we were very surprised that we, we were told we couldn't, we couldn't include that. Yeah, we wanted Lucy. We wanted Lucy in there as a little bit of a nod. You know, um, we were so excited. We were actually watching an episode of the Lucy Show, which was, oh no, I'm sorry, no, here's here's, here's, here's Lucy. Lucy. So there was I Love Lucy, then there was the Lucy Show, then there was Here's Lucy, right? And she was on TV for little, almost 20 years straight with a, a couple year break. Well, there's a couple of Star Trek things within there. One is you can see the Mugatu costume. Um, in one of the episodes of here of uh, of the Lucy Show, I think it is, yeah. and and Johan uh, Prohaska, who does a lot of the, he did the Devil in the Dark, he did the Mugatu, 
He's in a lot of the costumes. He's in a lot of the Lucy episodes. Anytime they needed an ape, you know, he was he was in there. But there's an episode of um, the Here's Lucy where she actually says Star Trek and is talking about the show. And we were just like, yay, you know, that was so great uh, to hear her <laughs> say those words, you know, um, and, and be referring to the actual. She said something like this looks like a reject from Star Trek or a rerun of Star Trek or something like that. Yeah, she's referring a re- to yeah, rerun of Star Trek. So um, which is kind of neat because that show was on in the early 70s, which shows you Star Trek was already in people's still in people's consciousnesses and growing it was becoming mainstream where it's winding up on all these sitcoms, even in the early 70s. Um, but uh, yeah, we really wanted to have Lucy at least represented in the book and Charlie Bluedorn because it was him. It's, it starts with him saying, no, we're going to make this uh, when, you know, everybody else thinks, why would you make that when the first one didn't catch the fire you wanted it to make? But, uh, but it was, it was out of our control. It was a rights issue. Yeah, there were, and same thing with like Robert Fletcher. We would like to have had a picture of him in the book, but it was just tough to to trace down some of the rights to pictures. It's interesting you missed mentioning uh, Blue Dorn because you know uh, Paramount Plus did the show The Offer about the making of uh, The Godfather, and of course he's a big part of that, uh, being uh, the president of Gulf and Western. And so to hear his name and kind of have an idea of him a little bit more than I would have was really cool and so neat that, you know, he was the champion of making sure that, you know, this happened, that Star Trek continued. Um, and like you said, you know, without him saying that, we might not have ever had a Star Trek too. It's the only reason, I mean, in some ways it's, it's um, while a totally different position, um, I, you know, I wonder where, regardless of what people's feelings are of the J.J. Abrams films, I wonder what Star Trek would look like today without them, right? Because at that time, the, the, I remember, and I'm sure we all remember that, all you heard was Star Trek was going to go on vacation. Star Trek needed a rest. People were tired of Star Trek. Franchise fatigue. That's all you heard. All you heard. And that it looked like it was going to be a decade or two uh, before anybody would revisit Star Trek again. And it was really... Um, J.J. Abrams saying, no, I want to do a Star Trek movie with Paramount that they said, okay, well, then you do a Star Trek movie because he could choose whatever he wants to do. I don't know how much of that was J.J. and how much of that was, say, you know, Robert Orsi and, you know, it's the friends who had his ear, you know, but it, and and that's the same thing with Charlie Bluedorn. I, if he didn't greenlight Star Trek too, the whole trajectory of Star Trek, and not only greenlight it, it, it was like, we're doing it because that was, it's his studio, right? And he was either going to say yes or no. And nobody was whispering in his ear to do it in terms of uh, other executives, right? I, I think this, if I uh, if I my memory is right, his wife was a fan, and and wanted another Star Trek film, you know that kind of thing maybe, but not, uh, you know that was that was his initiative, and uh, really um, a, a big part of saving Star Trek and making Star Trek, you know what it became. No, no Star Trek two, uh, no Next Generation. No Star Trek for the voyage home. No Star Trek four, which yeah, it's just Star Trek: yeah. The Next Generation. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's something that I think is so interesting about this whole thing because you know, as much as people think of the one with the whales, you know, Star Trek two puts this indelible mark on Star Trek in a way that has never been you usurped. Like it, it 
you know, and, and Star Trek two sets the stage for what Star Trek really is, I think, in a way, almost in some people's minds, I think more than even the original series does. Um, and it, like you were mentioning, it just kind of becomes this template for everything that comes after it. And that's, I think, the the craziest part about this movie. You know, um, it, it, nobody can it, – it's, it's like they've always now tried to – especially with films, they're always trying to surpass Star Trek II. And it's in, – in, in, in all honesty, I think, you know, the only one – to me, that gets even close is, of course, six, because Meyer is not trying to surpass Star Trek II. He's trying to just continue and finish his story. Um, and But it's, that that's just the thing that's so fascinating about this movie is that it its place really cements, I think, Star Trek fully in the zeitgeist in a way that just has never been usurped. I think Star Trek II is, is, is about something, right? That's That's... And it's and it's about so many different things, and it's 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 polysemic. So, it you can watch it, and Mary Jo had mentioned that you know you watch Star Trek one week and watch it maybe a couple years later, and it means something else. Um, I remember how Deep Space Nine took on a whole new meaning after the September 11th, right? It, it, it the, the concept of what that means, and um, and you know. Um, and I think that there's there that that's 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 I think great science fiction, right? Is ones you could watch Planet of the Apes and it could be about technology, or it could be about race, or it could be about both, or it could be about a million other things. It could be about uh, you know speculative biology. I mean, it's it's there's so many different things. But I think Star Trek Two has so much um, um, going for it because it if you sort of respect the audience and you tell uh, just you stick to a good story and you tell a good story and you don't explain everything um, except that, which needs to be explained uh, to make the story work. And you right. honor your characters. You don't change them. Yeah. You keep it. I mean, you, you're, you're not, they didn't recast. They didn't, you know, change anything, um, but they, they, they matured them, mm -hmm. which is different. Right. So they they showed you them at a different place and at a different time. But you still recognized Kirk as Kirk, except one that was sluggish. Right. He was he was uh, sluggish and and maybe a little bit um, hockey. Right. In Star Trek, Two, That was, you know, that line, that through line of hubris in there. Right. And with those glasses and not wanting to wear them. And, you know, I just the there's there's so much going on. It's only when he gives up that hubris at the end that he sees his way through and he and he finishes and and to give the hero a flaw like that it's just great writing right and 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 a flaw that's not like cemented in any time period right you 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 want to you want to make it be where it's about the general human condition so that lots of people can watch it and and understand that you know it's not it's not it, star trek is best when it isn't timely and by that i mean it isn't reflecting actual news events but rather as of as of is referencing the general human experience um which includes um you know obviously the the things that are going on in in the news and it introduces younger new characters without sidelining your main characters that was something force awakens struggled with right they 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 how do you how do you get people to like these new characters 
um, yet at the same time, give them enough screen time, right? But but you have older characters who are the ones that people are lining up to see. Um, and and I think they were very smart to pair by pairing people right away, right? You paired, you know, they paired Peter Preston with Scotty. They paired Savick with with both Kirk and Spock, right? She gets a little bit of time with both. Uh, you know, if you got Yalcom with with Khan, that whole that whole theme of everybody has a child in this film, um, and has you know whether it's the Enterprise has its cadets, and Khan has his followers, or Khan has Yalcom, which is sort of symbolically his son, maybe his actual son, maybe not, but no one knows. Um, and uh, you know, Kirk has David, and and Carol has David, and. You know that that that's that's something that every human on on the planet understands because people have parents and people have children. One of the things I I I love that because, and I think you guys are both touching on something that is incredibly important in Star Trek specifically is that when Star Trek is its best, when it's it's most timeless. Um, I think is when it leans into its Shakespearean nature, which is it, it, it creates those those timeless themes out of uh, the milieu of of our uh, society now. But the, the things to which we continue to see play out over and over again, and that's what creates um, its its most indelible nature. So, and, and for me, in, in many ways, you know, uh, as, as uh, you were talking about your, him watching Deep Space Nine, and you have to keep peeking your head in because like, what's that? You know, well, that's where that series, I think, was um, honestly the best of Star Trek because it's the one that's most rewatchable because it's the most removed from um, being a reaction to what's happening, yet at the same time can be laid over centuries of human history and you can see the themes playing out because they're themes to which we as human beings and the human adventure as star trek is all about struggles with the most and and i think that's where star trek it's at its best so when it fails it's when it 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 it's not that and i think that's as you guys were both touching on that's what makes star trek 2 so beautiful as it touches on some of the most timeless human adventure stories and that's what makes it last um and you know that's what has made i think you know the best of star trek last for so many years now and will probably continue into the future um the ones that people remember are the ones that they can watch and see themselves in even if it's a hundred years later, and very much so with with uh, I think with Star Trek Two, I, I I certainly watched it very differently when I was thirteen, seeing it in the theater, um, <laughs> than I do as, yes. as a father, right? And as a as a as a as a man who's lost his father, right? I mean, so I, 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 I it it means something different, right? Spock's death means something a little different to me now that I've experienced it many times throughout my life. Um, as opposed to when I was 13 and I never really had experienced it before. Um, and uh, what, what you said too about timeliness, I, I, I this is only an opinion and, 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 you know, opinions are like, you know, about as worthless as, uh, as, you know, seashells, but um, 
one of the problems I think that we we face with some some of the more modern tellings of Star Trek is the language itself. And when you when you use language that's from today in Star Trek, it might play to an audience today okay, but it is not going to play well in the future. Um, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it reminds me of we watch, um, for example, the Beverly Hillbillies, and there's a couple episodes where they have um, beatniks on, and they're using the the slang of the day, and it really it takes you out of the episode when they do that. And so I think that that one of the things is to stay classical, as you were saying, sort of Matt, that that, that, that idea of staying classical with the the themes and with the dialogue. Um, with the music, right? Everything. I mean, there's a reason, you know, I think one of uh, uh, the original series certainly had an orchestral sound to it, but I think one of the the sort of smart things that that, um, Rick Berman brought in to Star Trek was the idea of taking the music and making it even, maybe even more classical oriented. um, Right. Because it it can, it, it plays... It can be any time period. I mean, Star Wars did that too, right? I mean, John Williams' music is just if you could you could overlay that over a, a, a you know a, a pirate movie, you know, in a way, right? And and it could work, right? <laughs> yeah. It does. It doesn't matter. And th- and that's what roots you emotionally. That's what roots you is the classical elements of Star Trek. Is what roots you because otherwise it's just you. How can you relate to something that's four hundred years in the future? So by making the characters classic archetypal by making the language classical um by making the music classical all of that and and to give it its own look and unique style right so i think uh, at least up until recently again star trek you couldn't watch you could watch next gen and nothing then or since with maybe exception of orville looks like it but orville orville's designed to try to look like it right and it's meant to look like that um you, when you watch the original Star Trek, there had been no science fiction that looked like that before. It had its own unique look to it, um, and, and 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 those elements I think are important. Star Trek II has its own unique look. It's got it stands apart from other Star Trek. At the same time, it it's still the Enterprise. It's still Starfleet. You're still seeing logos that you're familiar with, um, and you're seeing some costumes, reused costumes from the motion picture, um, but. But you're seeing, I think, something there that's familiar yet um, seems more mature, um, and which is totally fitting for the characters. And Star Trek Two also works because you have such a worthy villain; um, he's a worthy opponent, and the audience has familiarity with him. We know him from um, Space Seed, and it's great to revisit like what became of him, what became of his people. And I think the casting too of Montalban, just from the beginning with Spacey, um, was a worthy match for for Kirk. You know, you've got a strong person who's charismatic. He's a tactician. He's strong. Remember Gene Kuhn's notes to Carrie Wilbur, because Carrie Wilbur, of course, came up with the, the with idea for Spacey, wrote the first version of the script. Um. Fans of Lost in Space will know Gary Wilbur's name for a lot of those episodes. But, um, and Gene Kuhn, what, what he told him was to build us a giant of a man, was his exact words, and to and to and to give us a, a, a villain who's worthy of Kirk. 
And I think who knew that this could be, for lack of a better way of saying it, this could be uh, Kirk's Joker, right? This, 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 this is, um, this could be the character who's the worthy, the, the worthy opponent of the hero, and really challenges the hero. And I think that that's what Khan does, and 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 because he's not just physically superior, he's intellectually superior, but he has he has flaws that Kirk knows how to and Spock know how to um, exploit. Exploit, yeah, yeah. There weren't really a lot of villains in the original series that would have been quite that um, well theatrical. For one, you know, from uh, you know just Montalban's performance, but even just worthy of putting in a motion picture like this um you know Trelane was essentially a kid you know like you know there's there's so many you know that that kirk actually did defeat during the show that that khan was kind of a little bit of a loose end almost like he was still out there and it you know was definitely a good choice on their part to uh to use him yeah i thought i really on the original show the only other villain that he really faced that I thought was sort of equal in terms of the, the that type of threat was core, um, where core core was an intellectual Klingon, right? He 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 understood how to you know sort of not that Kirk didn't face lots of challenges on the show, but um, the ones where you could see Kirk maybe being get, getting beaten by uh, would be core and would be Khan. Yeah, the only other one that I can think of uh, is uh, the Romulan commander. And of course, you know, he perishes, but he was an opponent who fought and acted like Kirk. You know, they had the chess match. And in many ways, I feel like that's an episode that um, also plays very much like um, what we get the, the naval battle uh, of Star Trek II, right? Because that's the same type of thing that we get in this movie, of course, you know, with the Mutara Nebula battle. And that... Um, but yeah, you're. I think that's also a thing we've seen in the, in the struggle of of creating more Star Trek movies is them being able to find a villain worthy of you know the 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 main character, the captain. You know, I, I think um, you know that's why Star Trek Six works so well because Kirk is coming up against the Klingon Empire, who's killed his son, and it allows for growth there again for the character. Um, but it's also the reason I think that the only Next Generation movie that really works is First Contact, because Picard has a villain that um, has scarred him, has wounded him in a way that he can't get over easily, you know, um, in a way that that show never really wanted to dive into until we got to that movie. And so um, – and uh, that's, I think, one of the difficulties of making Star Trek movies in general is that – you you end up with this uh, conundrum of trying to craft a quote unquote villain um, because that's how movies work. Whereas television shows can play out different types of morality tales that you know people aren't going to want to go to the the movies to see as much, you know. And so yeah, and um, but yeah, I, I was going to say if you're going to add if you're going to create a new villain, then you got to spend time developing that villain so that the audience believes that this is a worthy, like believable opponent and then when you do that then you're taking time away from the character moments which we all love and expect which is why i think star trek 4 for all its comedic you know the 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 fun and the fun and the comedy of it has a brilliance to it right because the villain in that film is the situation 
right? It's it's there is no there is no villain except I guess time. Um, you know how do how, how do we get back? How do we save? Uh, and if anybody's a villain, I guess it's it's the people of the present who are you know destroying the Earth's future, that kind of thing. If you wanted to get into a, a message of some kind, but um, really a film without an antagonist, which which you don't get. You know the Star Trek films seem to always want to have that villain, right? Partially because I think they always want to recreate. The first one didn't really have one. I mean, it had Viger, right? But I don't know if you call Viger a villain, right? Viger was just a, a evolved, you know, machine, uh, a lost machine of ours. And I don't know, I would call him an antagonist, Viger, but I don't know if I call him a villain. Um, but I think all the films try to get their own con. I mean, in some cases, like with Into Darkness, literally their own con. Um, and, uh, you know, it's tough when you have, you know, when you have, uh, you know, Ricardo Montalban and Khan as your as what the hurdle you need to go over. That's a tough. That's a big jump. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm like, I feel like I could just sit here and talk to both of you about Star Trek forever uh, because it's it's so rich. But one of the things is is we're kind of uh, coming to a close. What was your favorite part of getting to put this book together? Well, I think for me, it was a chance to uh, to, to celebrate um, and for me to get to know even better uh, the people who made the film. We were we were able to talk to, um, you know, to Ken Ralston, to Judy Elkins, um, to to Nick Meyer, who we've we've talked to before, but it was a chance to really get into, you know, a longer conversations. Um, uh, Laura Banks, who we had never talked to before had really a great uh, you know literally a great seats uh, uh because she was the navigator of the reliant uh but she was there with Montalban every day and and to be able to speak with with Nimoy's family and, and Montalban's family and and just you know they're all just really they were all generous they just gave their time to this book um and uh to me that was just a great thrill I mean it's a if you whispered in the ear of 13-year-old John Tenuto and said, you're one day going to write the official, you know, 40th anniversary making a book, I would have said, okay, sure. Um, uh, and so it was a great thrill to be able to actually talk to people whose work we really admire because we really do, we, you know, I, 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 I love the actors um, and of course the characters, but um, I have a very strong affinity for the people who, make the sets and who design the sets and who make the costumes. And to me, their, their contributions. And I think everybody, uh, you know, who's a fan, I think we all appreciate that. That's why you go to Star Trek conventions. They'll have behind the scenes people, you know, we, 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 we like to hear from them um, because we are interested in those processes as fans. So um, uh, it was great to just be able to highlight them for me. Yeah, and I was going to echo that. One of our favorite aspects about going to a convention is to hear from um, people like the Akudas, um, the people who uh, design and create the costumes, to hear all the all the effort that goes into it. And it really adds to, when you hear the stories of how things evolved and how they cast somebody or how they made a ship 
or the costumes and and some of the um, like hurdles they had to go through, whether it was time or money and repurposing things, you you really get to see their creativity and their imagination. And that just adds more to when you watch the show, you have a greater appreciation for it. And so as we were researching and learning that, it just gave us a greater appreciation for a film that we already loved so much. And I'll tell you, the biggest thrill was to see what Titan did with it, because what, what the format you give them the book in is we're selecting the pictures. It's in a Word document and you're, sla- you know, you're slapping the text underneath saying this is what you wanted to say underneath. And then um, William Robinson, who did the art design on our book, I got to say, I it was like looking at a completely different book. I mean, it was different. It was he uh, he added so much and improved it. And we're very proud of the how beautiful the book looks. And we think that the big size of it gives fans a chance to which because you don't see. I mean, there's something and there's something about picking up the book and looking at the flipping the pages and, and seeing the image for real rather than seeing it just virtually. And what we saw when we looked at Nicholas Meyer's collection is just contact sheets. So it's sheets with just itty bitty little pictures that you have to like blow up to see the detail. So it's beautiful to see it this way. So we got to see, we were very excited to be able to, one of our favorite pictures uh, in there is a picture of what it looks like outside the bridge set. So not on the bridge set, but, but that's this, this literally like, like bowl, upside down bowl. Uh, and, and, and in fact, we had to like confirm that's what it was. We weren't hundred percent sure that's what we were looking at because the image was so small that we had. Um, and Nick Meyer is the one who actually confirmed, yeah, that's the bridge set. Cause he knew it. And you know, that was a challenging set. Um, but when we got to see it big in the book, we were like, wow, it's really cool to see, it, you know, to see it like this. So we were very excited about that. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a beautiful book for sure. Um, it was very exciting to, uh, you know, get a, get a copy of it and, and flip through it. And it's just, um, I think it's going to be as timeless as the movie, you know, getting to see all those behind the scenes shots and, you know, picking it back up again. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a, pr- a fairly quick read. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, just because you, you've got all the pictures to kind of help you along. Uh, Matthew and I were talking before this about, uh, there's a good mix of you know the the captions for the pictures of just describing what the picture is versus also giving more information than what's in the main text of the book so it it just adds so much to it so it's um yeah it's 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 going to be a great part of the collection for sure for anybody thank you yeah please and make sure if you get the book read the captions of the photos cuz there's a lot of detail. We were, we were, that's where we were able to sneak in a lot of details um, <laughs> was in the captions because of the limitation of space. So um, we wanted to use every inch we could. And I'm, I'm so glad you did. Uh, you know, I think like Casey said, this is a book that a- anyone who's a Star Trek fan is going to love, but not just that, but I think it's a, it's a beautiful way to um, get anybody who loves film um, to, to, you know, to get behind the scenes of, of a, a a picture like this that is, you know, that changed uh, history in film is is fantastic. So, for both of you, uh, where is the best place to to have people follow you so they can see, you know, what you are both working on and what's coming up next? Well, best place to follow us, uh, you can do it on Facebook. So, uh, we're b- betraying our age. Um, we're on Facebook, uh, but if you just look for for my name, John Tunudo, it's actually both our account. Um, and we share and we share any talks we're doing 
Uh, we just did a talk last week about Star Wars at the lot. We do a lot of free library talks, virtual library talks, um, things like that. We got one coming up about the Lone Ranger in December, uh, the history of Lone Ranger and so on. Um, our big next project is um, going to be out next year. Um, and it, it's, um, for McFarland Press. And it is a look at the making of the Star Wars NPR radio dramas. So it's a really wonderful exploration, we, we, we think. Um, brand new interviews with Anthony Daniels, Perry King, Ann Sachs, John Madden, who directed Shakespeare in Love, directed the three Star Wars radio dramas. Um, and he's in the book uh, with a new interview. Tom Vagley, uh, Josh Farden, who plays Luke in the in Return of the Jedi version of it. Um, and, and most importantly, it's, it's not only about the making of those films, it's about the writer Brian Daly. Um, who uh, we we tell the story of his life um, in the book, and uh, he died of cancer. And the, the, there's a synergy between Star Wars and his life, and his cancer, and the radio dramas. And um, these radio dramas saved NPR, uh, according to Frank Mankiewicz, who was the president of NPR at that time. And uh, so it's a really wonderful, really wonderful story. And uh, yeah. Again, something from my childhood. I loved the Star Wars radio dramas, and it was a chance to explore. Now, that's more of a prose book, so that's that's about eighty five thousand words. That book's a much longer book, um, but uh, it's we we hope fans are really going to like. And it's it's kind of a, a, a heartbreaking, but 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 beautiful story. That's incredibly cool, and I cannot wait to read that. You know, having obviously heard the radio dramas, but also, you know, read his Han Solo books for Star Wars and, and, and the impact that he had on early Star Wars fandom is actually pretty incredible uh, because, of course, you know, the radio dramas were one of the easiest ways for people to be able to consume Star Wars again. Um, you know, it wasn't like today where you could just pop in the, you know, the DVD easily. So uh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to read that. Um, thank you both. One, the book is incredible. So I hope everybody, uh, will get a copy of it, but, uh, thank you so much as well, just for, uh, giving us your time to, to be able to talk through it. Thank you. We love talking about Star Trek. So we've enjoyed this. Thanks Casey and Matt. We appreciate it. Well, that was uh, an incredibly insightful interview, um, and we're very grateful to John and Maria Jose for uh, letting us take up so much of their time. And, and for the listener out there, we we probably spent, what, almost an hour after that interview chatting with them. And, uh, you know, great people um, looking forward to what they've got coming up in the future um, and, you know, wish them all the best with that, because I... I just want to see more from them. Yes. I, I think I'm so glad you said that, you know, they were incredibly generous with their time with both of us. And it means a lot that, uh, of course, any authors come on their show and, and want to talk about their work with us, uh, share themselves with us. And uh, we're, you know, right here uh, at the holiday season coming up, Casey, and this feels like the perfect gift for any Star Trek fan. Uh, this book is incredibly beautiful. Casey and I uh, were blessed to get review copies of it, too. So thank you to uh, Titan Books for doing that for us so that we could mm -hmm. be able to cover this book. Uh, and honestly, can't wait uh, for what's coming up next. because got some great shows coming up for you here uh, throughout November. So keep on a lookout for that as we've got... 
the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko coming up. But Casey, uh, before that, if people wanted to catch up with you and talk with you about, uh, you know, Star Trek two or anything else that's going on, where would they find you? Um, well, the best place is, uh, or the best, best places are, uh, Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, XX Twitter, uh, or Instagram. I'm at knitting Trekkie. And then you can also find me, uh, I, I do lurk around on Facebook in the Babel conference. So definitely a good place there too. And I can be found all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 So just look uh, at any of the platforms, type in my name. If I'm there, you'll find me. Uh, you can also, of course, find me here on the network outside of Literary Treks with the 602 Club, which is our show about all of the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. And then, of course, you'll find me with more Star Trek talk on the Orb, Warp 5, the Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And last but not least, you'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network as well with two shows. One is completed. It's called Owlpost, about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.